This is a recording of A Look at Some Non-Standard Book of Mormon Grammar by Stanford Carmack, originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 11, 2014, pages 209 through 262, read by Stanford Carmack. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. A look at some non-standard Book of Mormon grammar. Abstract. Much of the earliest Book of Mormon language, which has been regarded as non-standard through the years, is not. Furthermore, when 150 years' worth of emendations are stripped away, the grammar presents extensive evidence of its early modern English character, independent in many cases from the King James Bible. This paper argues that this character stems from its divine translation. Preliminary Remarks This article provides additional solid evidence in favor of Skousen's tight control view of Book of Mormon translation and that the words of the text were revealed to Joseph Smith from the Lord. Skousen came to this view after scrutinizing the manuscripts, the printed editions, and internal and external textual evidence over many years. His approach is abundantly supported by many cases of obsolete early modern English and even some non-English Hebrew-like constructions that exist in the earliest English text of the Book of Mormon and whose syntax would have been unknown to Joseph Smith and his scribes. For date ranges of early modern English, some scholars use 1470 to 1670, others 1500 to 1700, and there are other opinions as well. As for late Middle English, it began during the early 1300s and ended sometime in the late 1400s. Introduction. Early assessments of the quality of the English language of the Book of Mormon were largely dismissive. Many criticisms were merely unsubstantiated, derisive comments lacking in analysis, sometimes made for comic effect, while others were more substantive, but still without an awareness of older English beyond that found in the King James Bible. A close syntactic examination of the language of the Book of Mormon, however, reveals that the quality of English in the book is excellent and even sophisticated. But because in many cases it is English that we don't use today, it seems to the casual observer to be deficient in many ways. The English certainly is very frequently different from and foreign to current modes of expression, but it turns out to be non-standard only sporadically. When we consider more advanced syntax, such as the nominative absolute construction, nested structures, and command syntax or causative constructions, hundreds of these in the text, with usage strikingly different from that of the King James Bible, we find the Book of Mormon to be quite elaborate in its patterns of use. Beyond fairly routine, shallow, derogatory statements about Book of Mormon language, we note that B.H. Roberts, who is largely and admirably self-educated, showed concern for errors in grammar and diction apparent in the text. He viewed imputing such errors to God as unthinkable, not to say blasphemous. Yet Roberts, with good motives but no expertise in early modern English, fell prey, as many of us do, to the allure of grammatical prescriptivism. And by asserting what he did, he put constraints on the Lord, imposing specific choices. 
we hardly need to remind ourselves that God has supreme intelligence and that we are limited by human understanding. With that in mind, it is right to be expansive in our acceptance of grammatical possibilities within the book and grant that the Lord could have intentionally made a translation using forms that are non-standard in modern English, and he also could have allowed dialectal forms to enter the first written text. Indeed, he has permitted many incorrect and unnecessary emendations, largely inconsequential, to become part of the fabric of the book's text through the years. Because of the frequency and number of subsequent substantive edits through the decades, we conclude that Moroni did not instruct Joseph Smith against making such changes to the text. So the Lord knew it would happen through the years, and though aware of the loss of meaning that some of the faulty emendations entailed, he has waited patiently for them to be corrected, in all likelihood because they have not been doctrinally significant. God chose the language variety that was delivered to Joseph Smith, despite its archaic and obsolete character, consistent with his divine purposes. But still, many of us, like B.H. Roberts, have tended to doubt the quality of the textual language through the centuries because some of the older forms in the book look wrong or sound bad to us, even from the perspective of the King James Bible. A portion of that doubt stems from the fact that we don't have a linguist's knowledge of King James Bible language, but more of it derives from the fact that we aren't experts in early modern English, both comprehensible positions. As a result, we've missed some some arcane linguistic correspondences between the King James Bible and the Book of Mormon, but what is more important We haven't realized that many ostensibly defective forms reflect usage from earlier stages of the English language. Most of these are clearly attested in the textual record of early modern English and even late Middle English, some frequently, some rarely. It's important and helpful to bear in mind that the original Book of Mormon language is, generally speaking, only non-standard from our standpoint centuries after the Elizabethan era which appears to be the epicenter of the book's syntax. To be clear, I still allow for a small portion of the language of the Book of Mormon to be the result of human error on the part of Smith and Scribe, what Skousen calls dialectal overlay. But many words and phrases initially found in the text, which we have thought to be American dialectal idiosyncrasies, are not. Many of the non-standard modern English word forms and phrases emended through the years are simply examples of, of typical early modern English. Please note that I do not call these examples cases of standard early modern English, since it's doubtful that there was a standard at that stage of the English language. The impetus for most of the edits that the Book of Mormon has suffered through the decades has been to clean up the language and make it more closely conform to a modern English standard. It's perhaps ironic that through the years, emendations have removed language that clearly points to the objective impossibility of Joseph Smith being able to either compose the book or put it into his own language. It has obscured our ability to see that it it is, in large part, an early modern English text. While ascribing some non-standard language to deity is against Roberts's view of over a century ago. This reality is not problematic to faithful views of the text's provenance.
by virtue of his supremely intelligent nature, the Lord must be viewed as having native speaker competence in all language varieties and being fully capable of putting together the English text of the Book of Mormon with its normal, if extensive, linguistic variation. Skousen has asserted that since God is not a respecter of tongues, he is perfectly willing to speak to his servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. In other words, the Lord doesn't discriminate against linguistic variation or the intrinsic worth of different languages and dialects when not used in an evil way for evil purposes. Therefore, had another time and place been right for the publication of the Book of Mormon or another style of language, then another language variety could have been chosen. The notion of non-standard in relation to early modern English. With those introductory remarks, we now review some recent statements about the idea of non-standard as it relates to earlier stages of English. Hickey notes that the modern notion of standard English is an 18th century development which builds on formal usage prior to that. The, pre the prescriptivism which arose at this time led to the social marginalization of dialects and their literature. Claridge and Kitta observed that the concept of non-standard remains somewhat fuzzy during the early modern English period. Language change and especially ongoing standardization can make it difficult to pin down an individual feature at any given time as clearly non-standard. The goal of standardization has always been to achieve maximal functional capacity with minimal variation in form. In other words, a lexical or syntactic standard is one that can be used in a maximum number of contexts with variation kept to a minimum, variation in vocabulary, spelling, grammar. Prescriptivists want to eliminate variation, but that is never possible in spoken language or in extended written texts, nor is it desirable. The Book of Mormon exhibits plenty of variation, and that is the result of its being a natural language translation. God conveyed the important eternal truths and doctrines found in the text after the manner of an earlier stage of English, a human language full of both free variation and principled variation. And of course, we must conclude that he chose not to reduce or eliminate the variation. The King James Bible seemingly has less variation, but that is due in part to the King James Bible Translation Committees consciously working to reduce it, and also the result of standardization over time since its initial publication in 1611. Take, for example, Thou Settest, Thou Setst. There is one of each in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. In contrast, there are 21 instances of setzed in the King James Bible Old Testament, but no variant forms. So is the King James Bible a purer, better text than the Book of Mormon? Is the Book of Mormon faulty or defective in this regard? We can answer this question with a decisive no. We currently read a cleaned-up, standardized version of the King James Bible and the Book of Mormon as well. The current partially regularized text of the Book of Mormon has two instances of only sets. The 1611 Old Testament had 13 instances of sets, the so-called standard form, four of setest, three of sets, spelled with a Y, and one of setest, spelled with a Y. 
That verb form has been completely standardized in the biblical text, in both spelling and phonology. An example of incomplete standardization is riches. In Jeremiah 48, we now read, Because the riches that he hath gotten are perished. But in the 1611 original, this reads, Is perished, since riches coming out of the Middle English period was singular, being derived from Old French, richesse, singular, equals wealth. Indeed, Revelation 18 still shows the singular usage with archaic auxiliary selection. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and so we have incomplete syntactic standardization still to be found in the venerable King James Bible. With that in mind, we now consider some forms found in the Book of Mormon which are generally accepted to be non-standard. Skousen mentions three in one of his early, ar- earlier articles on Book of Mormon usage. In them days, I had smote, they was yet wroth. These deserve a second look. Are these non-standard forms? From a modern English perspective, they certainly are. Are they clearly attested in early modern English? Yes. Must they necessarily be regarded as the intrusion of upstate New York dialect in the translation process? No, they don't have to be at all. Demonstrative them. First, we consider in them days. The use of the demonstrative them has been an American non-standard dialect form for some time, but it, but it actually arose at least in the 16th century in England and was part of formal usage in that time period. It simply wasn't adopted into the codified standard of British English, which emerged during the 18th century and which was shaped by the strictures of normative grammars, which were published at that time. In the Oxford English Dictionary, we see these three early non-standard examples of the demonstrative used after a preposition and with a following noun. 1596, to Samaria and them parts. 1598, the wars and weapons are now altered from them days. 1621, four of them logs make a cob. The 1598 quotation shows the use of them days, just as we see twice in the Book of Mormon. Apart from the fact that there was no unambiguous standard at that time, one can only say that these quotations are from contexts which make a careful and formal use of language very likely, Claridge and Kitta. So while it isn't accurate to call them days standard early modern English usage, Because of the absence of a standard, we can properly view it as formal, early, modern English usage. It thus fits well in the Book of Mormon text. It is reasonable to surmise that them days was indeed transmitted to Joseph Smith twice. There was probably no inadvertent conversion of those days by Smith or scribe into dialectal them days in the scribal transmission process. While its use may grate on our prescriptivist nerves, them days can reasonably be viewed as an intentional part of the translation. By way of a brief aside, this article singles out for discussion examples that appear to be ungrammatical or non-standard. Much of the time, however, the superficial grammar of the earliest text actually seems standard from a modern English perspective. 
A case in point is the phrase type we've just been discussing, in them plus plural noun phrase. The Book of Mormon has more examples of the modern English standard in those cities, in those traditions, in those signs, in those lands, in those circumstances. And those was also used in this way in the King James Bible and more generally in early modern English. Leveled past participial verb forms. Next we consider I had smote. To many of us, smote seems to be a past tense verb form defectively used in a pluperfect construction. The King James Bible doesn't use smote in this way. From the perspective of that important biblical text, past participial smote is a grammatical error. It seems like smitten should have been used in 1 Nephi 4. Indeed, in the latest LDS edition, there is only standardized smitten in these contexts, a clear reflection of that view. But smote is specifically noted in the Oxford English Dictionary as functioning as past participle for centuries in English, beginning in the 16th century. The Oxford English Dictionary contains about 10 examples of this usage. Here are two representative quotations from that dictionary, one with smote used in the passive voice, one with smote used in the active voice. 1597, he caused the city of the priests to be smote with the edge of the sword. 1658, the goose quill hath smote Antichrist under the fifth rib. As a result, we are justified in thinking that smote is the correctly translated word. Again, this paper focuses on exceptional word forms, and this is the case here as well. Past participial smitten is used 40 times in the Book of Mormon. Only six times is the leveled form smote used. Still, Shakespeare goes along with the exceptional Book of Mormon usage. There is no occurrence of smitten in his large body of work. There is one case of have smote, another of have smit, but no cases of have smitten or be smitten. Shakespeare's smit is a clipped past participial form akin to hid up, which is found ten times in the Book of Mormon, including twice in the title page. Here is an interesting 17th century usage found in the Oxford English Dictionary, 1652, that so his sublime and recondite doctrine might be the better hid up therein. The Oxford English Dictionary declares therein to be a word used formally in early modern English, and the Latinate adjective recondite fits in such a context, supporting the assertion that hid up could appear in formal language. So hid up, which Twain poked fun at back in 1872, is not just a 19th century American colloquialism, but a formal usage from the early modern English period. It is noteworthy that had smote occurs three times in the Book of Mormon, never had smitten. This is a good example of a pattern widely seen in the text. Past tense verb forms used as past participles are especially favored in the Book of Mormon with the past tense auxiliary had. Some notable ones are had spake, had came, and had began. Had spoke is a usage directly analogous to had smote, and it is found at least eight times in the Oxford English Dictionary. Had spake is found once, beginning in the late Middle English period. And had spoke also occurs six times in the Shakespeare oeuvre. There is no case of had spoken. 
as a result, have smote, be smote, and have spake, or be spake, should not be considered non-standard dialectal forms in the Book of Mormon. They have deep English roots. The same can be said for many other analogous forms in the Book of Mormon. For example, had came. Past tense number agreement leveling. Next we consider they was yet wroth. They was is, is uncommon in the book and in the early modern English record. It occurs five times in the Book of Mormon, while they were occurs 628 times. Nevelina no, notes that the plural pronouns, we, ye, or you, they, were used with singular was in early modern English written correspondence about 5% of the time from 1440 to 1639. Of these, they was is the least frequent. This overall rate of use is slightly higher than what is noted in the Book of Mormon, the kind of difference that might be expected in comparisons of written correspondence with a formal religious text. The variation from the early modern English period is thus properly reflected in the text. So we conclude that the rare instances of they was found in the text were likely intended and not caused by dialectal overlay. Each of them could have came from the divine translation. The usage rate of we was and ye was is higher in the Book of Mormon, but the counts are much lower. We was occurs once, we were 35 times. Ye was occurs once, ye were 20 times. Northern British writers demonstrate singular past tense usage with ye or you as far back as the 15th and 16th centuries. Nevelinen has found that in early modern English written correspondence, we turns out to be the only plural pronoun to occur with any frequency with was. The observed relative frequency is, in descending order, we was, then ye or you was, then they was. There isn't much relevant data in the Book of Mormon text, but they was does show the lowest rate of use of the three plural pronouns, as was the case in early modern English. Also consistent with early modern English behavior is the observed fact that plural to singular leveling occurs only in the marked past tense in the Book of Mormon. That is, there isn't any occurrence of they is in the book, or we is, or ye is. Nevelinen has found early modern English language that exemplifies this directly. 1642. Some of our chief commanders, as Colonel Sands and Douglas, was wounded, and are since both dead. 1652. That in the evening from a steeple which hath advantage for it, was discerned 300 vessels. They are merchant men in general. The 1642 excerpt strikingly and effectively illustrates the use of the past tense in the singular and the present tense in the plural. The subject is the same for both verbs. The Book of Mormon, in effect, shows the same usage pattern. Alma 7. For as I said unto you from the beginning, that I had much desire that ye was not in the state of dilemma like your brethren, even so I have found that my desires have been gratified, for I per perceive that ye are in the paths of righteousness. The correspondence between early modern English, some was, some are, and Book of Mormon, ye was, ye are, is clear. Existential verb use in the past tense. Nevelinen 
also indicates that the existential past tense there was was frequently used with plural noun phrase subjects in early modern English written correspondence. 29% of the time. That should not surprise speakers of present-day English. The same tendency is noted today with both theirs and there was. A check of there was followed by plural noun phrase subjects in the Book of Mormon yields, yields 30 counts. Here are four plain examples. First Nephi 18. There was beasts in the forests of every kind. Alma 4. There was envyings and strifes. Mormon 9. If there was miracles wrought. Ether 13. There was robbers. On the other hand, there are about 120 instances of there were plus plural noun phrase subjects in the book. This yields a 20% usage rate for plural subjects with past tense singular verbs. Thus, the Book of Mormon rate of there was usage with plural noun phrase subjects is lower than, but fairly close to, the observed early modern, modern English written correspondence rate. Again, this is the kind of difference we expect when we compare the Book of Mormon with the less formal corpus used by Nevelinen in her study. Worth mentioning here are the three places in the Book of Mormon where instead of there was plus, plus pearl, plural noun, we surprisingly find the reverse situation. That is, there were plus singular noun. These are all of the form there were no, followed by a singular noun. Third Nephi 4, and they were in one body. Therefore, there were no chance for the robbers to plunder and to obtain food, save it were to come up and open battle against the Nephites. Mormon, 3 Nephi 11. Nevertheless, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there were no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Mormon 1. Peace did remain for the space of about four years that there were no bloodshed. Is this bad Book of Mormon grammar? The King James Bible doesn't have any cases of this curious syntax, and these readings have all been changed subsequently to there was no. See Skousen's ATV Part 6. This discusses these examples, noting that there was no is used in the text in this context at least 36 times, and there was no was also commonly used in the 16th century. Yet a search for the plural construction in early modern English does turn up a number of examples. 1523, whereof there were no doubt but that right abundant streams should from his most liberal magnificence be derived. 1681, I and my watch, going my morning rounds and finding your door open, made bold to enter to see there were no danger. In short, these Oxford English Dictionary quotations have, there were no doubt, there were no cause, there were no way, there were no danger. This subjunctive construction was therefore optionally available for use in the early modern English period to express the unreality of the situation described an old example of what is commonly termed the irrealis mood. Consequently, not only do we find that this particular Book of Mormon syntax, there were no chants, there were no part, there were no bloodshed, is not bad grammar, but from an examination of the syntactic structure in early modern English, we obtain additional confirmation that the Book of Mormon is a well-formed early modern English text. Notional Concord and the Principle of Proximity how about syntax such as, The arms of mercy was extended towards them, Mosiah 16. 
It appears twice in this verse and once with present tense is in Alma 5. Singular was is used about one-third of the time in the book in these contexts. Nowadays, we tend to focus on grammatical concord with the head of the noun phrase. So from that point of view, this is defective agreement. But in this particular case, there may be notional concord, that is, mercy was, or even agreement of a verb with a closely preceding noun phrase, in preference to agreement with the head of the noun phrase that functions as subject. In the case of the arms of mercy was, proximity agreement is probably reinforced by notional concord. Quirk and et al. also provide the following example and four others are included below theirs. These sentences demonstrate the prevalence of the phenomenon in present-day English. No one except his own supporters agree with him. More than one was there. Less than two were there. None of these examples were very clear. I asked her two specific things which I didn't think was in her article. Some verses showing proximity agreement or notional concord can, of course, also simply be cases of early modern English plural singular agreement variation. That is because singular was was used with plural noun phrase subjects 20% of the time at the beginning of the early modern English era. That rate diminished over time. 16th century examples of this kind of agreement and of proximity agreement from the Oxford English Dictionary include the following. 1508, the assaults of death was fierce and sharp. Past tense, second person singular inflection. One of the signal achievements of Skousen's earliest text is the uncovering of early modern English usage through unflinching editorial rigor despite apparent ungrammaticality. Take, for example, thou received, as found in the following passage. Alma 8. Thou hast great cause to rejoice. Thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God from the time which thou received thy first message from him. The second person singular past tense verb form in this verse initially carried no st inflection, even though Luke 16 has thou receivest. This then makes it seem like the Book of Mormon is faulty when compared to the King James Bible. So isn't thou received just the result of a dictation or scribal error, a mispronouncing or mishearing of a rare verb form with a difficult consonant cluster? Almost certainly not. First, the pronunciation is very different. Two syllables versus three, very different ending sounds. Received versus receivedst. Second, the textual record of early modern English shows that second-person singular inflection was often not used with regular past-tense verb stems. This absence of marking is present from at least the Middle English period. There are many examples of thou used with bare past-tense stems in the Oxford English Dictionary. Here is one very similar to thou received. 1526. Thou conceived thy child without corruption or violation of thy virginity. This indicates that thou received could well be a case of early modern English syntax, not a failed attempt at archaic usage or an inadvertent human error. Similar to this is thou had, used as a full verb in this choppy verse. Alma 11. Behold these six aunties 
which are of great worth, I will give unto thee, when thou had it in thy heart to retain them from me. The Oxford English Dictionary has eight examples of uninflected thou had from the 15th to the 17th centuries, and Alma 11 fits right in with these quotations. Here's one early modern English example. 1526, In faith I would thou had a marmoset. One other past tense second person singular verb form without inflection is relevant to this discussion. However, unlike the previous two, thou beheld in 1 Nephi 14 has never been changed by a Book of Mormon editor to thou beheldest. This is a rare verb form in the textual record, but we see the same usage in a late Middle English quotation. Circa 1400, where thou beheld her fleshly face. In addition, present tense auxiliaries with thou are very similar to past tense second person singular full verb forms. There are dozens of examples of second person singular shall, will, and may without st or t inflection in the Oxford English Dictionary. That indicates it was a prevalent usage in early modern English. Consequently, thou shall, thou will, and thou may are not cases of bad grammar, but typical forms that were widely used in early modern English. The effect of word order on subject-verb agreement. Remember thou and did thou are examples of the effect that word order may have in potential agreement contexts. The first one is the only time a present tense full verb lacks second person singular inflection in the earliest text. First Nephi 14, Remember thou the covenants of the Father unto the house of Israel? Again, this example is the outlier. There are 26 cases of present tense yes-no question syntax in the Book of Mormon with second-person singular verb forms, and all of them, with the exception of 1 Nephi 14, adopt marked forms with second-person singular inflection. Believest, knowest, seest, deniest. So the tendency to use second-person singular inflection is very strong, but the rare variation here can still be explained by the positional effect, as is commonly seen in many languages, including English during its various stages of historical development. Lack of verb agreement with post-verbal subjects is more frequent than it is when the word order is canonical. See, for example, England, 1976, discussing, discussing some old Spanish examples. Here are two examples of non-agreement, one from the Old English period and another from the Early Modern English period. Alfred, this is from Alfred, on that same garment was also written the names of the twelve patriarchs. That's a recasting into present-day English. 1549, that night was the commoners of London discharged of their watching at all the gates of London in harness. These examples are reminiscent of was discerned 300 vessels given above, though remember thou is slightly different since it involves person marking. It is nevertheless another instance of the same general phenomenon. To be clear, what is being put forward here for consideration is not that Old English directly influenced the Book of Mormon text. Rather, I am trying to show that the tendency towards this kind of non-agreement was present in English at an early stage of the language, and that tendency, found in many languages over time, carried through to early modern English, which is the language of the text.
Next, we take a brief look at did thou in the following passage, Ether 12. For thus did thou manifest thyself unto thy disciples. For after that they had faith and did speak in thy name. Thou didst show thyself unto them in great power. Early modern English past tense leveling of second person singular inflection is possible in Ether 12. The Oxford English Dictionary has thou did eight times. But it is less likely because of no instances of thou did in the text and the use of thou didst later in the verse in Ether 12. The positional effect is a more likely explanation. That is, because the verb did preceded its overt second person singular subject, the analogical force pushing the use of did, a very high frequency unmarked verb form, trumped the force of subject-verb agreement. Another similar example is the following. So great was the blessings of the Lord upon us. First Nephi 17. Roughly 20% of the time there is no plural agreement in the Book of Mormon. When the agreement controller, controller follows the past tense verb be, that agreement rate is very similar to the rate calculated for there was with plural noun phrase subjects as noted above and the syntax is effectively like it. In both these cases, there may also be an effect from the formally singular element, there or great, which precedes the verb, but we don't need to stretch that far in order to explain the variation. The positional effect is sufficient to explain it. Again, more typical syntax in the Book of Mormon is the following. Great were the groanings of the people because of the darkness. Third Nephi 8. Third-person plural subjects used with archaic third-person singular inflection. Another curiosity of the Book of Mormon in the domain of subject-verb agreement is that third-person plural subjects are often found with archaic third-person singular inflection. Nephi's brethren rebelleth, they dieth, they yieldeth, they sleepeth, flames ascendeth, hearts delighteth, Gentiles knoweth, men hath, many hath, etc. This syntax is not found in the King James Bible as noted in Skousen's Analysis of Textual Variants, Part 1. So, is this usage ungrammatical? No, it's characteristic, characteristic of early modern English. The Oxford English Dictionary has about 60 examples of they, followed directly by verbs ending in E-T-H. 1526, they consumeth superfluously and spendeth in waste in one day the goods that would suffice and serve for their necessity many days. And there are clear quotations such as the following ones with noun phrase subjects that are part of the early modern English textual record. 1541, the veins beareth the nourishing blood. 1590, the seas fretteth away the ice and snow. Consequently, such syntax constitutes one more piece of evidence that Book of Mormon language is not a derivative of King James Bible language, either poor or otherwise. Hearts delighteth and flames ascendeth are not grammatical flaws or even syntactic calques of a base Hebrew text, but early modern English syntax has hath variation. One of the inconsistent modernizations the book has undergone after a score of global edits 
has been the increase of the appearance of has at the expense of hath, currently 36% has. Excluding biblical passages and the witness statements, hath occurs 724 times in the Yale edition, but has only 76 times. That is 9.5% has. The highest rate of use of has is in Mosiah and Alma. The lowest rate is in the small plates. The King James Bible doesn't use has, not even the original 1611 text. So is the presence of has in the Book of Mormon an instance of bad grammar? No. On the contrary, it is directly in line with pre-Shakespearean early modern English usage. The Oxford English Dictionary points toward the following has usage rates during the early modern English period. Some sampling bias is undoubtedly present in these figures. 15th century equals 32% has. 16th century equals 7.5% has. 17th century equals 25% has. The nadir of, of has use was squarely in the middle of that period. The Book of Mormon is right at home with 16th century half has usage rates. Faith on the Lord and if it so be. The Book of Mormon uniquely and consistently uses the phrase faith on the Lord or faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, not found in the King James Bible. The biblical text only uses faith in. The Book of Mormon also uses faith on the name of the Lord several times. Skousen has found these relevant 17th century examples in early English books online. 1614, by faith on his name we may have life. 1636, and when all fail, renew thy faith on his name. 1652, they are altogether sufficient for that, inasmuch as faith on the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to his commandments. 1661, he makes them to see their sins and bewail them, and raise them by renewing and strengthening faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. The emphatic hypothetical, if it so be, is used 41 times in the Book of Mormon, almost always with that. It isn't found in the King James Bible. In the biblical text, if so be, is used almost 20 times, half the time with that. And the verbal phrase, if it be so, and if it were so, which is more like modern English syntax, is found three times, never with that. In view of this, is if it so be an error on the part of the Book of Mormon? No, on the contrary, the hypothetical phrase, if it so be that, is well attested in the Oxford English Dictionary eight times, the last time in 1534. Quotations include two by these famous authors, Chaucer and Moore. More, 1534, if it so be that a man perceiveth that in wealth and authority he doth his own soul harm. The structure found in the Book of Mormon constitutes evidence of the independence of the book's language vis-a-vis the King James Bible and testifies to the historical depth of its syntax. Date of impersonal constructions, like it supposeth me, it sorroweth me, and it whispereth me, are also not found in the King James Bible, though they appear in the Book of Mormon. 
some analogous syntax is found in the King James Bible. The first phrase, it supposeth me, used four times in the text, is classified as rare in the Oxford English Dictionary. That dictionary provides a single late Middle English example from a poet who is a contemporary of Chaucer, 1390 Gower. But all too little him supposeth. There is also this example taken from early English books online, 1482, Caxton, Polychronicon. Me supposeth that they took that vice of King Hardicunt. The next impersonal construction, it sorroweth me, is also attested in the early modern English record. And it whispereth me is exemplified with many similar quotations from early modern English and modern English. 1595, it sorroweth me to think of the ministers of England. 1605, Shakespeare, Macbeth, give, sorrows wor- give sorrow words, the grief that does not speak, whispers the o'erfraught heart and bids it break. 1713, something whispers me, all is not right. The presence of these impersonal verb phrases in the Book of Mormon is an indication of the historical range of the book's language. The analogical past participle are riven and auxiliary selection. Another item which indicates that range is the past participle arriven, meaning arrived, with analogical strong inflection used at least five times in the Book of Mormon. See Skousen's ATV Analysis of Textual Variants Part 1 for a, discuss- for a discussion. The verb arrive is not used in the King James Bible. The analogy with the three-form verb drive is apparent. Drive, drove, driven. Analogous to arrive, arrove, arriven. There are two relevant late Middle English entries in the Oxford English Dictionary with a riven, circa 1435, in a forest she is a riven, circa 1450, recast, tomorrow shall ye them all see to land a riven. The first quotation, she has arrived in a forest, shows the use of is with the past participle a riven, akin to he is risen. Modern English, he has risen. In the earliest text, arisen is used only with have. Had, have, or has. So this parallels the infrequent use of the verb be in the book with other similar verbs of motion and change of state, like come and become. For example, they were nearly all become wicked, 3 Nephi 7. This usage is the exception in the Book of Mormon, and the overall usage pattern in the Book of Mormon in relation to auxiliary selection with these verbs is completely different from what we see in the King James Bible. That text prefers the use of were come, etc. So, had the biblical text used a riven, it would likely have used was a riven, am a riven, etc. At the time the King James Bible was being written, the usage rate in early modern English of have with this class of past participles was below 20%. 
This rate would jump during the late 1600s to 30% or more. This estimate of the 1611 rate is backed up by data from the Oxford English Dictionary, Shakespeare, and a recent linguistic study, the King James Bible, with 15 cases of have plus come, but 494 instances of be plus come has only a 3% rate of usage with have. Thus, it is archaic for its time in terms of auxiliary selection. On the other hand, the Book of Mormon is the complete opposite in usage. 96% have with the verb come. It functions like an early 19th century text in this regard. This is one of the areas where the Book of Mormon is a modern English text, and the use of a riven with have in the manuscripts is an example of a curious mixture of modern verbal syntax with older morphology. The more part of the people. The obsolete though transparent phrase, the more part of, occurs 24 times in the Book of Mormon, but is not found in that exact form in the King James Bible. It is, however, used twice without of in Acts. The Book of Mormon is always explicit in its use, perhaps her plainness. For example, the more part of the people. While the King James Bible only uses the bare phrase, the more part. More, as used in this phrase, carries a sense of greater in number, which became obsolete in the 17th century. The Oxford English Dictionary provides several examples with the more part of from the late Middle English period and the early Modern English period from 1380 to 1610. Here are two quotations from the 16th century, 1546, the more part of their tempting sprites they have made she-devils. 1585, palm trees, of the fruit of which trees the more part of the inhabitants are nourished. The phrase fell out of use at the beginning of the modern English period. Nominative absolute syntax. The Book of Mormon uses the nominative absolute construction frequently, clearly and differently from the King James Bible. Two notable examples are found in the first verse of 1 Nephi. Compare the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Here is one showing nested syntax. Note the repeat of the people after wherefore. The people having loved Nephi exceedingly, he having been a great protector for them, having wielded the sword of Laban in their defense, and having labored in all his days for their welfare. Wherefore the people were desirous to retain in remembrance his name, Jacob I. The clarity of the syntax is heightened in the Book of Mormon because almost always an overt subject precedes the present participle. For example, I, Nephi, having been born, the people having loved Nephi. A logical adverbial connector, therefore or wherefore, is used between the clauses, and even if the subject of the main clause is the same as the one in the nominative absolute clause, it is repeated following the logical connector. For example, therefore I was taught, wherefore the people were desirous. The book's nominative absolute syntax is distinctive, emphatic, and more closely aligned to what is found in early modern English and the early modern English period than the King James 
Bible's usage, and it is notably plainer in use. Here is a biblical example taken from the Oxford English Dictionary, also showing the way the Book of Mormon might have expressed it. John 4, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. Book of Mormon style, Jesus being worried with, wearied with his journey, therefore he sat thus on the well. Here are two more examples from the King James Bible which demonstrate the relative clarity of Book of Mormon nominative absolute style because of the overt initial subject and the use of therefore at the clausal junction. Acts 2. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Book of Mormon style. He being exalted, and having received the promise of the Holy Ghost, therefore he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Romans 5, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Book of Mormon style, We being justified by faith, therefore we have peace. The verb beseech used with the personal preposition of. The King James Bible and the Book of Mormon differ in the following way in their use of the archaic verb beseech. King James Bible, I beseech you, I beseech thee, 46 times. Book of Mormon, I beseech of you, I beseech of thee, four times. Is this use of beseech defective syntax on the part of the Book of Mormon a bad imitation of the King James Bible? No, the use of the personal preposition is old syntax found in both the late Middle English period and early modern English. About 1400, he of him beseeches. 1563, and to be young again, of Jove he would beseech. The use of of before the person who is besought may seem like a minor and consequential difference, yet the Oxford English Dictionary clearly distinguishes between these constructions and declares the one used in the Book of Mormon to be obsolete. Furthermore, the usage in the texts is distinct and consistent. The most rigorous statistical test for this pattern of usage gives the odds that this difference in the texts occurred by chance at five in one million. Auxiliary usage following beseech. What about the use of should in the clause that follows besought in the following Book of Mormon passage? This specific usage is absent in the King James Bible. Alma 30. Now when Korahor had said this, he besought that Alma should pray unto God that the curse might be taken from him. In the King James Bible, only would or might is used after besought 15 times in the New Testament. And when present tense beseech is used, then only will and may are used, never shall. The King, this King James Bible auxiliary usage is consonant with the semantics of the verb. Supplicate, beg earnestly. The auxiliary will or would, in particular, with its notion of voluntary action, is a good semantic fit for the clause following and syntactically linked to beseech, because the meaning of the full verb directly implies that notion. On the other hand, when the auxiliary should is used with beseech, the use is somewhat anomalous. 
since there is a combination of some degree of compulsion or command and supplication. Nevertheless, usage of should following beseech is found in 14th and 15th century quotations in the Oxford English Dictionary and also in a 16th century example from early English books online. The important thing to notice in these quotations is the co-occurrence of besought and should in boldface in the following passages. We will skip those and go to the next paragraph after the examples. The 1390 poetic passage appears to say that the clergy besought God so they wouldn't foolishly squander their intellect on earthly matters and so they'd be able to avoid the corruption of Simon Magus. Acts 8. Interesting, both should and might are used in the same syntactic sequence after besought. Both these auxiliaries are also used immediately after besought in Alma 30. One in the same way, should, the other in a related purposive clause, might. In the 1390 quotation, the clergy themselves wanted God to compel them to engage in worthy study with should. And also, the clergy evinced a desire to have the ability to avoid corruption using might. In the 1450 excerpt, a queen knelt before her lord and besought him to compel others to similarly show deference to a steward. As a result of these findings, we learn that the use of should with beseech in the Book of Mormon reflects a well-formed early structure found in both late Middle English and in early Modern English. And we also learn that Korhor made a forceful plea to Alma even perhaps one of a commanding nature. Uh, otherwise, the auxiliary would would have been used, as used in Alma 15 with Zeezrom. The use of should would be sought, like the use of beseech of, reveals the depth of Book of Mormon language. Grammatical mood after the hypothetical if. The Book of Mormon exhibits plenty of variation in its use of grammatical mood, subjunctive as opposed to indicative. For example, present-day English, if I were versus if I was. One word that optionally controls the subjunctive mood in the book is the hypothetical if. In other words, after the hypothetical, we find that the verb is sometimes in the subjunctive and other times in the indicative, with no discernible difference in the meaning of if. Mosiah 18, if he have more abundantly, he should impart more abundantly. 3 Nephi 18, but if he repenteth not, he shall be not be numbered among my people, that he may not destroy my people. The following example indicates compactly free variation in grammatical mood in two verses, one chapter apart. The source language derives from the Old Testament. As a young lion among the flocks of sheep who, if he goeth through, or if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Third Nephi 20 has goeth. Third Nephi 21 has go. Compare Micah chapter 5. In a few places in the Book of Mormon, there, there is more than one verb after if, and in three of these passages, there is variation in mood. These interesting cases can tell us about deeper linguistic behavior. Still, some find this variation to be unsatisfactory usage. But the same pattern of use is also found in at least one Shakespearean example, 
in the original King James Bible in 1611 has a similar example as well. This testifies to its well-formed nature in relation to early modern English, telling us at the same time that it is not substandard usage in the Book of Mormon. But this kind of variation is not found in the current state of the King James Bible. Because of the aforementioned emendation, there is now no mixture of use. As a result, when conjoined verb phrases follow if, the King James Bible uniformly uses the subjunctive or the indicative. Consistent patterns of use are also found in Shakespeare and the Book of Mormon. Consistent subjunctive use, Luke 9. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself, or be cast away? Alma 22. Yea, if thou repent of all thy sins and will bow down before God. Taming of the Shrew. If he be credulous and trust my tale, I'll make him glad to seem Vincenzo. Consistent indicative use, Proverbs 2, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding. Mosiah 2, For if he listeth to obey him, and remaineth and dieth in his sins, the same drinketh damnation to his own soul. Othello, the more of Venice, If thou but thinkst him wronged, and makest him makest his ear a stranger to thy thoughts. Variation in grammatical mood and conjunct effects. When there is variable mood after if in the Book of Mormon, the pattern of use is always the following, subjunctive and indicative. Never indicative and subjunctive. Here are the three verses that show this pattern, one from Shakespeare. Uzziah 26, And if he confesses sins before thee and me, and repenteth in the sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. Helaman 13, For as the Lord liveth, if a prophet come among you, and declareth unto you the word of the Lord, which testifieth of your sins and iniquities, ye are, ye are angry with him, and cast him out, and seek all manner of ways to destroy him. Third Nephi 27, But if it be not built upon my gospel, and is built upon the works of men, or upon the works of the devil, Measure for measure. He must before the deputy, sir. He has given him warning. The deputy cannot abide a whoremaster. If he be a whoremonger and comes before him, he were as good go a mile on his errand. In short, these are the verb forms showing variation in grammatical mood after if found in the Book of Mormon, Shakespeare, and the King James Bible. Book of Mormon. If confess and repenteth. If come and declareth. If be and is. Shakespeare, if be and comes. King James Bible, if do and if doest. The ellipsis of if and the subject in these Book of Mormon verses tells us two things. First, it indicates that these verb phrases are closely linked syntactically, and therefore that both are under the same hypothetical condition. And we know that the hypothetical condition in these verses is sufficient to control subjunctive marking in the first verb, yet there is also analogical force in the language to use indicative forms for these verbs, since indicative forms are used in the majority of contexts. This analogical force is weaker than the hypothetical force for the first verbal conjuncts. Second, elliptid if also makes it more likely that the indicative will be used in the second verb, the distant conjunct, since if is not overtly used, and that is the element that overcomes analogy, which drives the use of the indicative, 
and controls the use of the subjunctive for the close conjuncts in these passages. In summary, if calls for the subjunctive, analogy calls for the indicative. In the first verb, closely following the hypothetical, if overcomes analogy and controls the shape of the verb. In the second verb, far from the hy overt hypothetical, analogy outweighs if in ellipsis and controls the shape of the verb. That being the case, while it isn't surprising for both conjuncts to show only subjunctive marking or to show only indicative use, as we've seen above, it would be anomalous if the following were found in the text. If plus indicative and ellipsis plus subjunctive. This, of course, doesn't occur in the text. The complex syntax of conjuncts in the Book of Mormon exhibits native speaker sensitivity to early modern English and typical cross-linguistic behavior. Another example with variable marking. These verses are similar to Alma 39.3, which also has subject ellipsis and variable marking. In this case, on the past tense, auxiliary did. See the discussion in Skousen's Analysis of Textual Variants, Part 4. For thou didst forsake the ministry, and did go over into the land of Siron. In this verse, the distant conjunct did is unmarked for person, even though the understood subject is thou. This is another example of the tendency of distant conjuncts under ellipsis to level to less marked shape, less marked shapes. Again, we would be surprised if the text had the following. For thou did forsake the ministry, and didst go over into the land of Siron. None of these examples have been changed through the years precisely because they represent, at a subconscious level, acceptable syntax. Yet because this syntax is absent in the King James Bible, and since it involves the non-use or use of archaic verb inflection and variable marking, which was outside the scope of Smith and Associates' daily usage patterns, these examples constitute some evidence for divine early modern English authorship, just as the use of words with non-King James Bible early modern English meaning does. In addition, an author consciously attempting to sound scriptural or express things using biblical language would likely have been mechanical in usage with unfamiliar forms and probably would have followed the consistent 1769 King James Bible. A counterexample to leveled forms under ellipsis. Here is a verse that appears at first glance to qualify as a counterexample to the foregoing since an indicative verb form is followed by a subjunctive one. See Skousen's Analysis of Textual Variants, Part 3. Alma 22. But Aaron saith unto him, If thou desirest this thing... If thou wilt bow down before God, yea, if thou repent of all thy sins and wilt bow down before God and call on his name in faith, believing that ye shall receive, then shalt thou receive the hope which thou desirest. In this verse, fine points of grammar can aid our understanding of the intended import. To begin with, this isn't a counterexample to Mosiah 26 or Helaman 13, since there's no ellipsis of if thou before the first occurrence of will bow down. So the two uses of if can convey different hypothetical force. In this doctrinally powerful verse, there's one, entrance, one instance of the indicative after if at the outset, and then three cases of the subjunctive, will, repent, and will. And there's only ellipsis of if thou with the final subjunctive use of will.
Lamoni's father has just indicated his desire to Aaron, and so desirest in the indicative conveys that Aaron entertains no adverse opinion as to the truth of the statement. The hypothetical if therefore conveys a notion akin to given or granted that, supposing that. After that, however, the subjunctive is used three times, conveying the notion that Aaron is faced with the normal lack of certainty surrounding the realization of his statements. This is therefore a good example of the earliest text elucidating meaning, while well-intentioned conjectural emendations have obscured it. It also tells us that at a deep level, the Book of Mormon is an intelligently crafted, sophisticated text. Much horses or many horses? How about the strange use of the adjective much found in the Yale edition with plural nouns taken collectively? Much afflictions, much fruits, much threatenings, much horses, much contentions, much provisions. Is this a reflection of non-standard U.S. dialectal use? No. Usage in the 16th and 17th centuries definitively says otherwise. Half of the above phrases have been emended through the years, with the noun usually suffering the change and thereby affecting nuance. See Skousen's Analysis of Textual Variants, Part 2. Perhaps the motivation for emendation was because the King James Bible clearly shows this use only once, much goods in Luke 12, or perhaps because it's non-standard modern English. Yet the 16th century textual records has many examples of this use. These two are reminiscent of Book of Mormon syntax. 1565, the same emperor, after much disputations and conferences, had with the Arians. 1586, you have, through, much, through so much envyings, persevered in your attempts. Helaman 3.3 nicely illustrates free variation in use, taken to be an, an intended part of the divine translation. There were much contentions and many dissensions. In early modern English, although much could be used and was used before a variety of plural nouns, many was used more frequently, perhaps as much as 85% of the time in the 16th century. The paraphrastic past and an obsolete use of the relative adjective which. Next, we consider this late 16th century quotation taken, taken from the Oxford English Dictionary, 1588. Many of the gentlemen of the city did go unto the Spaniards to visit them in the which visitation they spent all the whole day. Remarkably, there are three things in this excerpt that are found in the Book of Mormon, but not in the, K in the King James Bible. First, did go. This particular wording is a grammatical structure that is familiar to any serious reader of the Book of Mormon, and is currently used in modern English for emphasis and contrast. Back in the 1500s and early 1600s, did go could be used without indicating any emphasis at all. When it was used in that way, it simply conveyed the same meaning as went. The periphrasis did plus infinitive appears more than 1,500 times in the Book of Mormon, and it is used 54 times with the infinitive go, either as did go or didst go. On the other hand, the King James Bible uses went or wentest more than 1,400 times, but never didst or did go in affirmative declarative syntax. The early modern English usage of expressing the affirmative declarative simple past with did plus infinitive peaked in the latter half of the 16th century. 
probably in the 1560s. The Book of Mormon is full of this paraphrastic syntax, using it more than 20% of the time, while the King James Bible uses it sparingly less than 2% of the time, and mainly with did eat. This is additional evidence that the Book of Mormon's syntactic center of gravity is this time period. Second, although in the witch is found in the King James Bible, it is not used with a syntactically linked noun as it is with visitation in the 1588 quotation above. This occurs a handful of times in the Book of Mormon, in the witch things, in the witch rebellion, in the witch strength, in the witch alliance, in the witch time. More than a dozen examples of this prepositional phrase with the relative adjective witch are to be found in the Oxford English Dictionary. The earliest ones noted in, the, in that dictionary come from the late Middle English period, the majority from the 16th century, and the latest one isolated thus far is from the year 1617. The Book of Mormon has both in the witch things, like Chaucer, and for the witch things, similar to a 1568 quotation. Third, the emphatic pleonastic phraseology, all whole, occurs here and once in the Book of Mormon in Mosiah 2.21, all your whole soul. To be plain, some analogous forms are found in the King James Bible. It has similar relative adjective prepositional phrases, by the which will and for the which cause. And as has been mentioned, it also has didst eat, etc. But the King James Bible didn't use these analogous forms frequently, the relative adjective after a preposition, or anywhere near as often as the Book of Mormon, the paraphrastic past. And it didn't ever use in the which with a noun, or did go, or didst go, when it had ample opportunity to do so. And so the Book of Mormon exhibits significant usage of 16th century forms like these, which are well attested in that time period, but barely present in the King James Bible. As a result, the syntax of the Book of Mormon is appropriately and even sophisticatedly creative beyond what is readily apparent in the biblical text. By the way of Gentile. Finally, one item in the title page is worth mentioning here. The phrase, by the way of Gentile, is an obsolete use of both way and Gentile. The use of way in this phrase is noted in the Oxford English Dictionary, but only one 16th century example is provided. Through the medium of a person. Obsolete. 1560, the 29th of October last, I wrote to you from Paris by the way of Monsieur de Chantonnet. By the way of is frequent in the King James Bible, but it is used exclusively in locative expressions and is not used with persons. What seems like a use with a person in Numbers 21 is actually a covert locative use. So by the way of use for the person with the meaning of through the medium of is non-King James Bible early modern English, and perhaps rare if the scarcity of, of examples in the Oxford English Dictionary is any indication. Also, singular in form Gentile is an adjective use. Oh, an adjective used absolutely as a collective noun. The Oxford English Dictionary demonstrates the obsolete use with one late Middle English quotation, circa 15, uh, 1400, constraining the Gentile to become Jews in observance. Summary. This article has reviewed many forms and much syntax that is not found in the King James Bible, but which is found in the broader early modern English textual record. Because what we know to be standard early modern English, 
for a religious book in particular largely comes from our acquaintance with King James Bible language. Readily identifiable discrepancies on the part of the Book of Mormon from the from King James Bible modes of expression have been viewed as non-standard, even ungrammatical. And from the perspective of modern English, the earliest text of the Book of Mormon certainly often reads that way. But because much of its language is independent of the King James Bible, even reaching back in time to the transition period from late Middle English into early modern English, it needs to be compared broadly to those earlier stages of English. And we have seen in this paper that the Book of Mormon has many syntactic structures that are typical and well-formed from when compared to those of earlier periods of English. The correspondences are plentiful and plain. Therefore, in view of the totality of the evidence adduced here, I would assert that it is no longer possible to argue that the earliest text of the Book of Mormon is defective and substandard in its grammar. And that follows in large part because we would then have to call early modern English defective and substandard, since so much of what we see in the book is like that stage of the English language. And it was a human language like any other, fraught with variation and exhibiting diverse forms of expression. My hope is that this article has managed to disabuse us of the idea that the Book of Mormon is full of errors of grammar and diction, and appreciate the text for what it is, a richly embroidered linguistic work that demonstrates natural language variation appropriately, and whose forms and patterns of use are strikingly like those found in the early modern English period. There is now clear and convincing evidence that the Book of Mormon is, in large part, an independent, structurally sound, early modern English text. The bulk of the foregoing textual usage was beyond the reach of Joseph Smith and also his scribes, who put the Book of Mormon text in writing. Because of the way language use works, even written texts naturally resist conscious manipulation. That is because we express conscious thought by a largely subconscious act of drawing on an internal grammar built up over time by experience, analogy, and inference. Yet, in the case of the Book of Mormon, even if the composition of the book had been consciously manipulated by Smith and his associates in order to create a structurally and lexically plausible work of scripture based on the Bible they knew, the evidence is abundantly clear that the language is broader in scope and in many cases deeper in time than what might possibly have been derived from the King James Bible. Its grammar shows that it is markedly different in a number of ways, so the text itself presents solid evidence of its non-King James Bible origins, since it clearly draws on a wide array of other language forms and syntax from the early modern English period, some of them obscure and inaccessible to virtually everyone 200 years ago. Only now are we beginning to appreciate the book's surprising linguistic depth and breadth. This has been a recording of A Look at Some Non-Standard Book of Mormon Grammar by Stanford Carmack, originally published in Interpreter, A Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 11, 2014, pages 209 through 262, read by Stanford Carmack. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.